Welcome to Close Horse, the podcast that is so ready to change what it means to be a worker in this world. Seriously, how many of us, if we can even afford therapy in the first place, are spending so much time at therapy talking about our jobs? It's got to end. Our jobs should not be sending us to therapy. You know what I mean? I'm your host, Amanda, and this is episode 182. I took last week off kind of by surprise because I'm currently dealing with the hottest viral illness of 2023, shingles. Yeah. Seriously, though, I would have never guessed that was what was wrong with me if I hadn't heard two other podcast hosts on Trend Lightly talking about their recent bouts with shingles. I just would have never guessed that this is what shingles is. Um, But fortunately, I have a pretty mild case, I think, because I caught it fast. The treatment is working, and I'm already feeling a lot better than I was a week ago. Thank you to all of you who sent really kind thoughts and super cute cat photos over the last week while I was kind of laying on the couch feeling sorry for myself. (laughs) This week's episode, I'm so excited about this because I've actually, I was actually disappointed that I just didn't have it in me to put this out last week because I've been excited about this episode since weeks before it was even recorded. This week's guest is a return guest, Rachel Greenlee. You first met her in January when she dropped by to talk about her New York Times essay, This is the Reality of America's Fast Fashion Addiction. In that piece of writing, she shared her experiences working in a facility processing Amazon returns. And the essay is a must read for anyone who's wondered like, what happens with all the stuff we buy online and then return. And I would also say, if you haven't listened to that episode yet where we talk about it, you should do that sometime soon too. It's episode 151. And honestly, I think talking about returns, which we're gonna have an episode about returns later this month, I think, or early December, something like that. (laughs) Anyway, uh, talking about returns right now is so important because this is the time of year where the returns start to really start happening, especially after Black Friday. And I think there's a lot of confusion. And even for me as a you know, a career buyer, I definitely, what I thought happened to returns, uh, doesn't happen in most cases. So go check that out. If you haven't ever listened to that one or read Rachel's essay, I will link to both in the show notes today. Rachel and I are going to talk about something totally different, but perhaps adjacent the performances we're expected to put on in a lot of our jobs. These performances are not the actual work that is part of our job description, but they are exhausting nonetheless. We'll be talking about the impact of those performances, how to recognize them, and our hopes for a better future of work. But before that, it is November, which means it's time for two Clothes Horse holiday traditions. The first is the 12 days of slow gifting. And in the past, that has included an episode or two about slow gifting, but I'm going to be skipping that this year. Instead, I'll be sharing inspiration and information about the 12 days of slow gifting all month long on Instagram and TikTok. I've already started, so go check that out and keep an eye out for more. The other Close Horse holiday tradition is 
small business audio essays. For the rest of the year, I'll be sharing audio essays from small business owners within the Close Horse community. This week, we'll be getting started with Alex of Orco Iris Design Studio. She was the first person to submit an essay literally within 24 hours of the announcement. So we all need to give Alex a massive round of applause for not procrastinating. Seriously, Alex, you are a hero. So let's give her essay a listen. Hi, Amanda. Thank you so much for the opportunity to submit an audio essay. My name is Alex, and I am the owner and lead designer of Adequities Design Studio. Adequities Design Studio helps unconventional entrepreneurs develop their authentic aesthetic with intuitive branding, astro branding, spiritual web design, astrology website templates, and much more. I aspire to bring out the uniqueness of each client I work with, and I do this through a combination of strategic using strategic design principles and esoteric practices like astrology, tarot, and color magic. I blend the mystical with the practical to create innovative design solutions for each client I work with. Ultimately, my goal as a designer is for all of us to shine bright in our uniqueness so that we can live in our truth and use our authenticity to bring more joy and happiness to the world around us. I mainly work with spiritual wellness brands, social impact brands, and creatives and artists. Uh, I do what I do because I really want to help people live their passions so they can go out into the world and do good in the world around them. And I really believe that by being the best versions of ourselves and going out in the world and doing uh, what we are passionate about, we will have a we will have a positive ripple effect on those around us. So ultimately one ripple at a time, we will have positive change in the world around us. And through the work we do as small businesses, we will ultimately make the world a better place. I love the opportunity to support people on um, in their businesses through, uh, through creativity. I, um, like I said earlier, love supporting people with building their brands through uh, visual brand design, creating a logo, color palette, things like that. Uh, but I also love getting a little bit more detail-oriented with creating websites. I primarily build on Squarespace and on Shopify. So whether you are a service-based business provider or an e-commerce brand, uh, I can support you Um creating a space that is all your own so that you uh, can reach your target audience. I really think that it's important for us to uh, leave social media as much as possible and not rely on it so much. Uh, that is why I am a web designer. I, I know it can be so difficult to wrap your head around not relying on social media, but Creating that space where you are creating those systems where uh, your business is not 
100% centered on, say, Instagram, for example, that can have a positive effect on your business as a whole. Say, for example, you completely run your business on Instagram and then uh, your account gets banned for some reason, you lose all of your followers when that happens. And there's no way of getting them back unless like, you magically reach out to the right Instagram gods and they reactivate your account. But that's unlikely to happen. You know what I mean? If instead you focus on building a newsletter list through your website, you own your list. Uh, The emails that people submit to you are uh, yours forever and no one can take those away from for you. So I really believe in creating um, holistic systems for uh, business owners that are actually going to help them succeed in the long run as opposed to just work in the moment. Uh, Yeah, so my goal really is to create long-lasting solutions for businesses as opposed to just something that's going to work temporarily. I started my business because I didn't like working for other people. I have been everything from a one-woman marketing department to... uh, a one-woman marketing department? Yeah, I've been a one-woman marketing department everywhere I've worked, actually. And, you know, as much as I like marketing, uh, doing it all yourself when you are an entry-level employee is not ideal. For one, uh, there's too much to do in, in a marketing department as one person. And also... Uh, when I was starting out working for other businesses, uh, I didn't have the expertise to really be leading the show, if that makes sense. So not having that support of other people really impeded my ability to have the most impact I could on, on the business I was working for. So uh, when I ultimately got let go from my job because my job was outsourced to India, I uh, needed to make money fast. So that's when I decided to commit fully to my side gig, which was my design business. And uh, I have been working for myself ever since, really taking it to heart that I can impact the world in a positive way through the design solutions that I provide my clients. Uh, my business, uh, for those of you that don't know, Arcoiris means rainbow in Spanish. So my uh, my business is all about rainbows, all about color, and it really highlights the uniqueness of each individual person that comes into contact with it. Also, Edis is Spanish for Iris, uh, who is the goddess of the rainbow in Greek mythology. And um, my entire business is in devotion to her. So if any of this is of interest to you, uh, feel free to connect with me on Instagram at Studio, or you can find me on my website at adequities.design. Thank you so much again, Amanda, for giving me the opportunity to share a little bit about my business and what I do in the world. And I hope to connect with other members of the community and keep um, supporting each other to make the world a better place.
Thank you so much, Alex, for taking the time to tell us all about yourself, your business, and, you know, give us a little bit of business advice too. She's right about everything she said. You cannot be putting all of your eggs in the Instagram basket. Um, There was a time when you could, but, you know, I was actually reading a bunch today about how Instagram uh, engagement has really leveled out and even dipped a little bit. And it's been particularly bad in the last month as people are sort of needing that mental health break from social media. The advice I've been giving all my clients is diversify. Diversify where you sell and diversify where you exist on the internet. So great advice from Alex that I 100% endorse. I'll be sharing Alex's website, Instagram account, all that stuff in our show notes. So please give her a follow and check out what she does. I am really excited, if I haven't said this like 100 times already, to have Rachel back for this episode, mostly because I just really enjoy talking to her so much. It's such a treat every time, and I think about what we've discussed for weeks afterwards, if not months. You know, the process for prepping an episode of this podcast isn't as spontaneous as it might seem, although I do try to make it feel spontaneous. <laughs> Before we even talk about recording, I usually spend an hour or so talking things through with the guest, you know, like typing up notes furiously, kind of hoping to build an outline for our conversation. And that's because I want to ensure that we both get to ask and say all the things we wanted to you know, ask and say. When you get caught up in a conversation, it's really easy to take a left turn and never come back. So this just helps me ensure that we get we get it all, right? And when I was prepping with Rachel for this episode, we were talking about her job search. She mentioned how opportunities had arisen here and there to apply for jobs that she didn't really want, but that, you know, would would feel safe, that would alleviate the fear of not being able to find a job, maybe even working for companies that didn't align with her values. I mean, that fear, in my experience, is so hard to shake. I have had it so many times over the years. I have 100% taken jobs that I should not have taken because I was afraid. You know, when Nasty Gal went under, I took my next job, the worst job I've ever had, which is interesting considering the job I just left, yeah, that job was actually worse than that. Um, I took that job because it just did not seem like there were going to be any other jobs on the horizon. And I had been unemployed, I don't know, maybe two months at that point. It hadn't even really been that long. But my job search just wasn't going that well. And I said, okay, I'm going to take this job and we're going to leave LA, this place I love. We're going to move to Portland and try this out. And you know, the job that I had before the pandemic. Uh, I also took that job after working for myself for close to a year because I was also afraid. I was afraid of, I don't know what I was afraid of happening, but I was afraid of, you know, I don't know, being homeless, not being able to afford food, all, all of these things. And it seemed like, okay, well, if I just take this job, at least I have insurance and I don't have to worry anymore, right? And that job wasn't the worst job I had, for sure, but it wasn't great either. <laughs> and it didn't align with my values, um, but it was, you know, it felt safe, right? So I am not unfamiliar with that sense of fear that you should just take a job. Like that fear that drives you to just think, I should just take take a job. It doesn't matter, right? It'll be fine. 
often those jobs that you just take because you have that fear, they end up not being so great, you know? Rachel told me that when she started to feel that fear, that sense that she should pursue a job that she did not want just to feel safe, she would go out in the woods and hike around until she forgot about it. And I have been thinking about that so much since that conversation, which I want to say was back in August, back when I had freshly quit my horrible job. And the fear was just sort of swirling around me at all times. There are so many times that I have said to myself, it's time to go for a walk in the woods, mostly as a metaphor, because it has been until recently way too hot to go traipsing around outside here in Texas. But there have been many times where I have had those moments of fear of, should I just apply for this job that I will hate, that will inevitably make me sick? Should I just do it because I'm afraid? And Rachel's words have helped me shut that down every single time. And I'm really grateful for that. So thank you, Rachel. If you are listening to this episode, I know it's really hard to listen to your own voice. I want to say thank you so much for helping me, I don't know, like recognize that I wasn't the only person who felt this fear and that it would be okay to not to not make a decision that would ultimately be bad for me because of that fear, that that I could... I could stick it out, that I could be brave, right? I think sometimes we all need to be reminded that we can be brave because all of us are, even if we don't feel that way. Sometimes fear has a really, it has a really great knack for making us feel like we are cowardly when we actually are not. Really, the entire conversation in this episode, which you're about to hear, has also helped me keep things in perspective. Listening to us discuss the exhausting roles we must play in the workplace, like all the times I had to listen to this while I was editing, it it reminded me over and over again of why I just don't want to do that again. It really kind of like renews my commitment to trying my hardest to never have to sacrifice my own well-being, my own life for someone else's financial gain. It's a privileged place to be for sure. And I'm not saying it will work out, but to feel as if I'm turning my back on that life, to feel that that is even an option, it's a wild place to be after being driven by fear for so long. It also took more than 20 years to get here. You know, it may not work out, but it might. And I, and I have to try. Certainly, I can look back at the first half of this year and remember the pain of it all. And even just taking that time to remember that, to continue to unpack it, it almost serves as that walk in the woods for me too. I've talked a bit here on the podcast about how sick that job was making me, how it was chipping away at my self-esteem, you know, my mental health, my physical health, just the relationships in my life, my relationship with myself. I know I shared a little bit about that back when I left that job this summer. I'm still unpacking it all. And I think I will be doing that for a long time. It's funny, but not in a ha-ha way, more in a depressing, infuriating way. 
that a fully transactional part of our lives, doing work for pay, right? We do the work, we get the money, that's the relationship. It can have these long lasting impacts on our mental and physical health, that people go to therapy to deal with work, that months and years later, we might still be unraveling the knots that we tied ourselves in during our time at that job, that we might never, or at least it might feel that way sometimes, ever regain the sense of self-esteem that we lost while we were there. In fact, I can say as a person who's had a series of messed up jobs in a row that I don't know if I've ever fully gotten it back, right, in between those jobs. And so I'm excited to have that chance to love myself again, you know, to learn to love myself again. How dark is it that I can say that my job made me think less of myself more and more with each passing day? That a series of jobs really chipped away at that, far more than any of the bad romantic relationships I've had. Rachel and I are going to talk a lot about the performances that we have to put on for others in order to succeed at work. And I think it was the performances that I had to put on at my last job that were far more exhausting than any of the actual work. To be clear, I was working extremely long hours. I seriously do not know how I was making clothes horse during the first six months of this year, but I see that I won. <laughs> how did that happen? I don't know. The work itself that I was doing at my job, I don't know. I've always been a hard worker, so it, it didn't phase me, but it was everything else that was exhausting me. It's the performance of everything being okay that was really chipping away at me. I managed an awesome team at my job. I actually miss all of those amazing people on a regular basis, and I've kept a little bit in touch, but in a very distant way, not because I don't like them, and I certainly, like I said, do miss them on a regular basis and have funny things I want to tell them, but I've kept a little bit of distance because I don't want to talk about the company where they still work, and People talk about their jobs. Friends talk about jobs, right? So that feels weird to me to not talk about it with them. And so I've been keeping my distance because I just can't talk about that place with them. I can't pretend it's cool. I can't pretend I'm there cheering them on because, I don't know, for one, the person who replaced me as their manager was formerly a peer of mine who disliked me before they even met me who was always miserable and shitty and backstabby to me. From the moment I joined the company, I didn't think we were in competition, but I guess we were. I can't say nice things about her because she never said anything nice to me. And I can't, like I said, I can't cheer for my former team's success because I think that company is a bad business. Even though I want them as individuals su to succeed, I don't want that business to succeed. Here's the thing about being the boss. The performance is even more complex. There's the act you put on for the executives that are above you. There's the act you put on for the peers around you. But the performance for your team is even harder because you have to pretend 
that everything is okay, that you weren't just humiliated and degraded for the last hour or two by the CEO. You can't cry at work. You can't seem tired or frustrated. You can you can't show that you disagree with a policy. You have to pretend just like a parent would do for their child that everything is just fine. You know the kanji, you know in Japanese for boss, it directly translates to part parent or half parent. And that has always felt very appropriate for me because that's kind of the role I try to embody as as a boss, you know, supportive, encouraging. I think of myself as sort of like a service boss as in I'm there to help you get anything done that needs to be done. And I also want to help you grow and teach you new things and be your number one cheerleader all all the same time. Being a boss, being a good boss, it's really exhausting, but it's important to me, right? Because I've learned how to be a good boss by all the bosses I've had, both the good ones and the bad ones. And it's a job that I always take really seriously. So for the first half of this year, uh, after my primary partner and peer at work was fired, although I was told he quit, um, essentially for standing up for me, for going to HR about this horrible meeting that I still have nightmares about this meeting. And I laugh at myself a little bit, maybe a little bitterly, uh, because it was a Zoom meeting. And I don't know if any of you are having nightmares about Zoom meetings, but wow, that is such a rip from the headlines of the moment kind of nightmare to have, right? Um, See also nightmares involving Slack. (laughs) Anyway, so my primary partner who had been really sharing like a lot of the workload, uh, like a lot of it, and just being like, I don't know, there to support me, you know, and be there when I was presenting things, back me up, and we made decisions together and stuff. So he, he got fired. And it was be- it was because of this meeting for standing up for me after this horrible nightmare Zoom meeting. And I mean, in this meeting, I was humiliated. I was screamed at. I was degraded. I mean, my spreadsheets were mocked as unprofessional. And to quote my friend Kim, the co-host of the department, she said, Amanda, but you're the Google doctor. Your spreadsheets are great. <laughs> Okay, so that happened. You know, this I was in the Zoom meeting at home. Dustin was in the other room in the office next door. And he physically like pulled me out of my office where that meeting was happening because he couldn't bear to hear me experience that for another minute. And I definitely cried for a long time. I called Kim on the phone. I felt sick. You know, when you are so upset, you almost feel like you have a hangover for a couple days from it. That's how I felt. And yet... I had to pretend to my team that everything was fine. Like an hour after that meeting, I had to get on the phone with a member of my team to talk about signage. I mean, that's 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 how it was. You know, when you're the part parent, when you're the boss, you gotta, you gotta put it aside. I had to pretend for so long that everything was fine, that I wasn't sick with dread over yet another meeting, yet another late night phone call from the CEO, yet another humiliation. I also felt that I had to put on a performance for my family, for Dustin, for my friends, that everything was just fine. 
that work was great and definitely not making me sick. I mean, Dustin knew otherwise, of course. He knew I wasn't sleeping at night, that I was having a really hard time getting dressed and going to the office every day. On our trips to Japan this year, uh, the only times I really took off work and still kept having to work, I was getting slacks to do work while I was on vacation. Um, In the last few days of both of those trips, I would find myself spiraling with depression, like unable to even exist in the moment. I had so much anxiety, so much outright despair over the return to work. It effectively ruined the final days of our trips. And I sat on the very long flight back to Austin, just (sighs) fretting, for lack of a better term, just worrying so much about what was going to happen when I went to work the next week. I experienced the same thing every Sunday when I woke up, every night before bed, and I just couldn't take another day of it. But I had to pretend everything was fine for everyone. I had to put on that performance. I also had to put on a performance for all of you here on the podcast and on social media that everything was fine, that I was having the time of my life. And to be fair, while working on Clothes Horse for the first half this year might have been a blur, it was also an escape, a place where, for the most part, I could not deal, I did not have to deal with humiliation and bullying. It was, it felt safe. Around March, things got a little weird. That was back when Alex of St. Evans and I did the series uh, about the ethics of secondhand. Still one of my favorite things I've ever worked on for Close Horse. And things were going pretty well. I had already protected my mental health by turning off comments and using the Instagram controls to keep trolls away. I mean, I had been doing that for years. I mean, to be honest, I've gotten really good at protecting myself on social media, or so I thought. But things went off the rails one night when a woman I don't know and did not follow, her name is Rebecca. I'm not going to tell you her full name. I'm not going to tell you her Instagram name. I don't want you to follow her or reach out to her or anything. I don't want you to look into this, okay? But she became convinced that a post I had made about the negative impacts of anti-reseller rhetoric, that that post was directly about her, that it was intended for her, like as a takedown of her. I, once again, don't know her. Um, She is a part of the vintage collecting community, and she has a lot of strong feelings about resellers. She even briefly had a podcast about that topic kind of after all this happened. But I don't know her. I am not part of that community. And that series, as you all know, was a bigger project that wasn't really about vintage, vintage per se, and was really more about secondhand as a whole. But Rebecca thought I was attacking her. And, you know, years ago, I began using an Instagram option that only allows followers to comment on posts. Major life unlock. I recommend it for all of you. I did that back then when some really fat phobic trolls showed up to harass people. And I was like, what can I do about this? Did some Googling, found out what box I needed to check, and I have not looked back. So in this case... Rebecca couldn't comment on my posts because she doesn't follow Close Horse. And that could have been the end of it, but she was convinced that not only was I targeting her with that post, but I was intentionally silencing her by preventing her from commenting. 
So she started sharing all of these nasty stories about me, comparing me to Nazis, just generally questioning my intelligence and decency as a person. Then her friends started harassing me via DMs and stories of their own. You know, I blocked her, obviously, like immediately after I realized what was going on, but the messages from her friends kept coming. And honestly, it freaked me the fuck out. Now, I think if I hadn't been so exhausted and broken by my job, I would have remembered just a few years previously that vegans had found my phone number and texted me death threats because I said the vegan leather was plastic. And I would have remembered that, that while it was scary at the time, that everything was fine after that. And I would have gone to sleep that night feeling fine. But instead, I was scared and angry. And I knew I had to go to work the next day. And I knew I had to keep pretending that everything was at fi- fine at work. And I knew that I had to keep pretending that everything was fine with my family and friends. And I knew that I had to keep pretending that everything was fine with all of you. That some Instagram nonsense hadn't messed me up. That my work wasn't just chipping away at me every day. I was just so exhausted and so hopeless. And I didn't know what I was going to do. Because the thing is, I felt trapped at this job, right? Like, if I don't work, then we don't have money to live because we have, for the most part, really relied on my income for years, right? And if I quit my job, I would be kind of letting down my family, right? So it almost felt like I had to stay at this job, even though I hated it so much. I don't know why I'm laughing. I'm laughing because... I don't know. I don't know why I'm laughing. Anyway, it was in the weeks after that, as I'm like, what am I going to do? I'm stuck in this job. I have to pretend for everything that everything is okay. I'm strangely like afraid to post on Instagram now, even though like I know it will be fine. It's just like a switch was flipped in my brain and now I'm afraid to interact there too. It was in the weeks after that, that I began to seriously consider trying to get inpatient mental health treatment. I have bipolar disorder. I I don't hide that. I tell you all that pretty regularly. And I have definitely done a few stints of inpatient, not since my late teens and early 20s, but you know, sometimes that's what you need, right? Um, but here in the US, that kind of treatment will generally bankrupt you or at the very least force you to stay at your shitty job because you need a steady income to pay those medical bills. And while part of me was like, I really think I need to be like somewhere in intensive daily therapy, trying a new medication, rebuilding my brain. The other part of me said, you might go do that if you can even find a place that takes your insurance that will take you. And then you're gonna have to get out and pay that off for years, which means you're gonna be stuck at this job even longer. And so I said, okay, I'm not gonna do that. I'm going to try to power through this. So then I said, maybe I need to quit Close Horse because I can't handle social media bullshit and my horrible job. I gave that option a lot of thought for a month or two, silently sort of just pondering this every day, hoping that no one would guess that I was just breaking inside. But I also just, there was this you know moment after thinking about this for a while where it was like, why would you give up this thing that you really love? that you're really passionate about, just so you can cope with this other thing that is so bad, so toxic? Why would you choose to lose the thing that keeps you going rather than the thing that prevents you from going, right? 
That's when I finally told Dustin. I said, I have to leave this job by the end of the year. In fact, I said, I would like to leave before Black Friday because I couldn't handle another holiday season of being yelled at. Seriously, the moment Black Friday hit last year and sales were slower than expected, it was just like not, I was sick. I couldn't sleep at night. I hated the holidays. I hated everything about it. I just kept refreshing sales reports and worrying more and more and getting screamed at more and more. And I just, I couldn't, I said I couldn't do that again, right? I was like, I want to get my life back. I want to, I want to enjoy the holidays. I want to enjoy life. I said, you know, I want to be gone before the holidays. And then I said, okay, actually, I want to be done before people have to start paying their student loans back because that's going to impact our business too. And then I'm going to be getting yelled at even more. And we were like, okay, okay. So by fall, fine. We'll see what we can do here. And I said, you know what, if I have to be here through the holidays, fine, at least I'll know there's an end in sight. It will help me keep some perspective. So we started to plan. What would that look like? When would we move? How much money would we try to save? How would we save money? Blah, blah, blah. And I started to feel a little bit better. Although, of course, now I also had to pretend at work that I wasn't totally planning my escape, which I was. Interestingly enough, um, something I never saw coming, in one way, I kind of got to live the dream that we've always wanted to live, you know, uh, when you have a bad job, is I quit that job after an incident in which the chairman of the board came over and started berating me in front of the whole office, then started berating some of my team, shamed her for eating food. And I was just like, fuck this place, I quit. And I've never done that before because you know what? The fear, the fear kept me there. You know, a week later, HR called me in um, to tell me what a loss it was that I was leaving the company. And you know, I said like, well, you know, this is having a major impact on my mental health. Like I just can't do it anymore. And the HR person said, you know, like he, the chairman of the board, the owner of the company, he isn't going to change. He's really set in his ways. And this is just how he is. He's just like this with people. And I said, you know, that's okay. But unfortunately, I'm also really set in my ways. And the one way in which I'm really set is that I can't handle abuse and humiliation at work. It's really triggering. It sends me off in a really bad way with my mental health. It prevents me from doing a great job. And no job is worth that toll or feeling unsafe. I felt unsafe at work. I felt unsafe from humiliation, but I also felt unsafe that someday someone in that office was going to get yelled at just one time too many and all of us were going to pay the consequences. I mean, this is Texas where there were a lot of guns. It felt good to just tell her like, hey, I'm, I don't care. I don't want to hear any excuses. I'm out of here. Because in the past, the fear, the fear would have made me say, okay, well, I'll just keep trying. I'll stay three months longer and see how it goes. Because the option was there. And I just, I'm really proud of myself. Like I said, we're all a lot braver than we think we are. Why am I telling you all of this? Because we have to normalize talking about this kind of stuff. We have to normalize being open about the impact our jobs have on our mental health. Anytime I talk to one of my friends who's having a really hard time at work to the point where they're like exclusively talking to their therapist about this stuff, or they're drinking a lot, or they can't sleep, or they're just so miserable. Anytime we talk about this, 
there's this sense of shame that you should be ashamed that your work makes you feel that way because it's, you know, quote, just work. But that's not true, okay? Work is where we spend the majority of our waking hours. It's where we spend more time with our coworkers and at work than we do with like our favorite people, right? It's not okay for work to make us feel like this. And it is a big deal for us to talk about it. Making conversations like this normal is step one in making it better for all of us. Work shouldn't make you sick. It shouldn't traumatize you or drive you to substance abuse. It shouldn't make you hurt yourself. Back after Christmas, after that horrible Zoom meeting, I started doing something that I hadn't done for a very long time. I started cutting myself. And that was how I silently coped with the next six months of draining performances for everyone around me. I assure you that when all of that Instagram drama was happening in March, I was also in my bathroom harming myself because that was the only way I could distance myself from what was happening in my brain. I still have those marks on my arms. And in fact, They seem to grow more pronounced after a little bit of sun. And many times when I'm starting to feel that fear that I should apply for any job, no matter how horrible it sounds, I look at my arms. I stare deep into the random lines crisscrossing on my wrists. They, they are my walk in the woods. They remind me that I deserve better and that I can find better. And they motivate me to talk about these difficult topics with all of you. It is not easy. Part of me is like, do they really want to hear this? Do they really care? Am I being a narcissist? Is this inappropriate? Is this over the line? But I know that our personal stories can help others better understand their own lives, to see the systems that harm us on a regular basis, and maybe even remind us that we collectively have the power to change it all. And that's why I'm so excited to share this conversation with Rachel, with all of you, so you can also start naming and calling out the messed up things that are happening in your jobs too. We will never fix it if we don't start talking about it. And by talking about it, we get others to talk about it too. So let's jump into that conversation. All right, Rachel, why don't you remind everyone of who you are? Yes, thanks, Amanda, for having me. So I'm a former corporate worker, ex-Amazon, ex-Starbucks, and in the last couple of years, I left uh, corporate work for a number of reasons. One, really, I was concerned with how I was indirectly contributing um, to climate change. Mm -hmm. And I was lucky to have the choice to go to grad school for an MFA in writing. And so I just graduated in June. Um, I actually have a full-time job that I'll be starting in October. That is not, yeah, it's not back in corporate America. So I stayed true to what my goal was. I'll be, um, a full-time writer at a nonprofit which I'm very excited about. And I was last on Clothes Horse 
to talk about my experience working in in Amazon warehouse where I was a seasonal worker for six weeks. And that was really my introduction to fast fashion. And that's how I discovered you and, and your podcast. Yeah, that was, it was so wild. I read your essay and then I posted about it and then you and I were connected. I, I still can't believe that's how we met. It's uh, what a world we live in. And it's all, I guess it's all thanks to Amazon. <laughs> how often <laughs> or the can New York you Times. say that? Or the New York Times. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. You know, fun fact, my last job, which I am no longer at, uh, I actually also got through the New York Times um, because I had been interviewed for my advocacy work for unemployed people by the New York Times economics writer. And uh, someone read the article and said, you should hire this person. And then they offered me a job, basically. It was wild. Oh, wow. I mean, that's yeah. the short version of it, but it all was the result of the New York Times. So anyway, big New York Times fan over here, um, <laughs> <laughs> making things happen in life. Okay, so we're here to talk today about work um, and specifically, I don't know, a lot of honestly very universal experiences, particularly for women, for non-binary people, for people who just aren't probably like cis white dudes and what we experience in the workplace. Mm -hmm. um, you sent me a piece that you'd written for as part of your MFA program, and it is not published yet, but I really, really hope it will be published soon, um, about kind of the performances we have to put on as we work. And I just have to say that reading it, it made me feel seen. Uh, it unlocked memories for me. It made me start thinking more about how, how work impacts our mental health in ways that we might not be aware of. And uh, I'm excited for us to talk about it today and hopefully have uh, people listening to this conversation will have the same experience of, wow, wait, yeah. That's how I felt. I think they will. For I think sure. they will too. Yeah, I think they will. Man, every point that you hit in that essay, I was like, oh, wait, what? I I had the same experience. Like it was it was incredible and honestly very validating. Also infuriating, right? Yeah. So yes. where you kind of start in your essay is you talk about a performance review where you were told that you had, and this is the this is the term, an attitude. Uh, I want to just get started by talking about that because I I have had this experience as well. Um, not that was you know I was told sometimes people can't tell when you're being sarcastic or not, or sometimes you don't smile enough, or sometimes you seem like uh, you think I'm wrong, <laughs> like weird things like that. And I was like, well, that's because I do. Um, but you know, when you're, I, I imagine you sitting in in the office or meeting room or what have you with your manager telling you this, how early in your career did this performance review happen? So this was actually pretty early in my career um, at Starbucks. And I had been hired by one manager. And then um, as happens a lot in corporate life, there was a reorg and I ended up mm. under another manager. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I will admit I was a pretty tense individual at that time. I was young. I took mm -hmm. my career really seriously, really seriously. And so that made me a little tense because I wanted to do the very best work 
um, I was also had been uh, widowed. And so when I started at Starbucks, I had um, my twins then were about a year and six months. So about 18 months old. Yeah. And I started at Starbucks before I had even hit the first anniversary of my late husband's death. Yeah. And so I had a lot on my plate. Um, and I was grieving, but I was also sort of a very stoic individual. (laughs) So, and I thought I was doing a great job, right? Like keeping the world afloat. So when this individual sat me down and told me that I had an attitude, um, and not just that I had an attitude, like this isn't in the essay, but she went on to say that she was going to work me out of the company (gasps) and I didn't have a place there. And in my head, I'm thinking, okay, I am a single parent. I need healthcare. (laughs) Right. Uh, and it, it, because she was a new manager to me, it really, came out of nowhere for me. Um, what I learned though, from that experience and what I talk about in my essay is somebody told me in my life, and I wish, I wish I could remember who that I could change the narrative Mm -hmm. by appearing less tense. So (laughs) smiling more, you know, when I saw this individual and all the other leaders, um, that I ran into in the hallways of the company, uh, strolling. I had this gate, you know, where I would clench my fists, um, and move really quickly through the hallways. And so I, I changed all that. Like I started to smile at everyone I saw. I, um, reduced my gate and started walking slowly and just basically put on a performance. Mm-hmm. So that I could appear as an individual who doesn't have an attitude, but is very welcoming. (laughs) I mean, I I feel this so much, right? Like, I've been in very similar situations, you know, that I have to pretend to be someone that I'm not um, at work. And that sounds like, that sounds very dramatic, but just that... My reality is that I'm one person and I'm doing a fine mm-hmm. job at work and that should be where it ends. But the performance review itself is less about the work that I'm doing and more about the performance I'm putting on every day about who I am or how I feel. And I'm not a generally like, uh, I don't know, I think like I'm a pretty warm, approachable person anyway, but I remember going to a management training program This was early in my career. It was like merchant development program. And it was a year-long training program for merchants. Even though I'd already been working as a merchant for several years, they were like, oh, we should should do this. And we're going to make everyone go. And one of the sessions was about how to behave at work, basically. I don't know what the name of the session was, but that was essentially what it was. And, you know, something we were told is that no one at work should ever be able to tell anything that is going on out in your outside (laughs) life. And that to me feels like such, well, first off, I mean, I, I, let's just get down to brass tacks here. This is the kind of advice you give women Mm -hmm. for real. Right. And it also feels so antiquated to say that out loud. And yet that was like, no one should know anything about your outside life. They should never be able to tell anything that's going on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, 
have experienced that. And honestly, I've also perpetuated that because I spent so many years in corporate and ended up managing um, many individuals and the same sort of advice that I got, I started giving to other people. Right. Um, so for example, you know, I write about being in a, a meeting and coming out of that meeting and uh, I had a different manager by then, a manager actually I really liked and really respected who said to me, she, she took me aside and said to me, you've got to stop frowning in meetings. <laughs> Uh. And, <laughs> and so one, should you have to stop frowning in meetings is, is a question on its own. But in this case, I hadn't been frowning. So what I heard from what she said to me, she didn't tell me to go get Botox, but that's pretty much what I heard, right? Because <laughs> individuals in this meeting, mostly men, were having a perception of an attitude because of the way my face looks. Um, and I did, I went through a long period of my career where, and we've all been there, right? You're sitting around this corporate boardroom. There's a dozen people and you're thinking about how your face looks. Are you holding it oh. with a faint smile? Right. Are you not rolling your eyes? Are you keeping your eyebrows raised just right to indicate that you have interest in the conversation? Um, and when you do that, you're not present, right, right in the right. room. Um, and it even extends to not just how your face looks, but when do you jump into the conversation? Like mm -hmm. I remember being in meetings where you'd always have a couple people, and yes, they were guys, who would take over the whole conversation. <laughs> yes. And for me, somebody who's an introvert, to be able to jump in and add something, you know, it was like watching kids skip rope and try to find your way in. <laughs> so um, stressful. Yeah. <laughs> That's a great metaphor. Yeah. So. Yeah. No, I, I really feel that as well. You know, the m number of meetings I've been in in my life where I am in, I'm the internal monologue is make sure you look like you're paying attention, but you're not judging what they're saying. Look mm -hmm. engaged and that you think they're saying things that are smart, even if you don't think that, right? And that's yeah. like, you know, making sure that I'm like looking directly at them and nodding my head appropriately when necessary, maybe slightly smiling. I mean, this is a performance that I don't think I was really aware that I had been doing until recently, honestly, even though like the it's a conscious decision every time I do it, right? I'm sitting there being like, be... Be as if you are having a great time listening to this, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and you're not thinking too much about it, but you're definitely thinking about it. And it's interesting because if you're really actively listening and thinking, you probably wouldn't look that way. And you might actually look like you are frowning because you're really thinking, you know? <laughs> exactly. um, and so it's like you're not even doing your best work, perhaps. And... You know, the, there's also this, oh gosh, the number in the early in my career, I was told I needed to speak more in meetings. One mm -hmm. manager, and you, know, you talk about passing this advice on to people throughout your career. I have done this as well. One manager said, you know what I try to do is I try to make sure I say three things in every meeting. Now, don't just say three random things. Say three insightful things, right? And so I would say like, okay, every meeting I'm going to go to, I'm going to set a goal. I mean, here I am like very early in my career, 
right? It's very stressful to speak in a meeting, you know, like a meeting where the president is at the table or something, you know? And so every month I would be like, okay, that's my second thing I said. I need, I just need one more. And then over time, as I grew more confident in my experience and moved up the ladder, so to speak, I didn't have to do that anymore. It felt very natural. But then it suddenly was like, you talk too much. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And it's like, but I'm a subject matter expert at this point. Yeah. A hundred percent. When I was at Amazon, I mean, I was hired in at a level seven, which is a pretty high level Mm -hmm. based on my experience. And I remember being in a meeting once where the manager I had and and at Amazon, your managers change constantly because of reorgs. Mm -hmm. The manager I had had told me not to speak up because the VP that we were presenting in front of uh, was a really tough VP and the manager wanted this engineer who was also working on the project, like we'd been hip and hip on this project to take the lead so that if the VP had an issue, the engineer would take the brunt of the blame. But so here I am, I'm a woman among a table of men, right? (laughs) And I had been working on the project with this guy for the whole year and felt that I should speak up about it. And so the VP at one point asks a question and I start to answer it. And I can see out of the corner of my eye, my manager who's down at the end of the table, like throw his arms up in the air, like one of those, you know, car, uh, shot puppets, air puppets, (laughs) dancing air dancers. Oh no. He was so upset in it. It, I mean, on the surface, these things like holding your face in a certain way, or not speaking up or, or speaking up and getting in trouble for it at meetings. They sound so small on the surface, but when it's day in and day out, it messes with an individual emotionally because you do not know how to show up. I mean, to some degree, it feels like a form of gaslighting, even though I know that's not the intent of the managers that I had. Right. Um, and so I was, you know, for myself, I was questioning why, why am I feeling this so strongly? And I ended up reading this book in the last year as I was like looking back on my career and thinking through it um, by the sociologist who teaches um, at Berkeley, who I just, I've read a number of her books on different topics and they're so interesting, but her name is Arlie Russell Hoschild and it's called my managed heart and it's she studied this is actually in the 1980s where she studied flight attendants mm-hmm. and how they had to show up in the workplace and if you think about the 1980s and flight attendants right like delta airlines flight attendants had to wear a specific color of lipstick they had to be a certain size mm-hmm. their hair had to be a certain haircut um they have to, of course, smile <laughs> at everyone that they interact with, even if that individual is being a jerk. Like they're there to save us if the plane goes down, and yet they play these sort of um, stewardesses, hostess type roles, especially then. Uh, and so, in reading that book, it really made me think about both within corporate work and the service work that I've done in life how women particularly are asked to do that. We're, we're paid a salary to do a job 
but then we have to have this pleasant look upon our face and be agreeable at the same time. And it and it's exhausting, right? I yes, I had. A, an employment gap, as they say in the industry, um, because <laughs> I was laid off at the beginning of the pandemic, like right, seriously, like two weeks into it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for about six months, all I did was try to survive, basically, like all of us. And then I started seeing clients and working on my own, you know, getting more serious about clothes horse, this kind of stuff. And so I had, I had about getting close to two years of not being in this environment anymore, being in an environment where I could be my genuine self at all times because I I owned who got to talk to me basically, right? Because also this is like peak pandemic. Like I'm not going to meetings and sitting around a boardroom table, um, you know, and I'm picking who I work with and it's a more intimate experience. And, you know, I, I was happy in a way that I can't explain, but I felt I felt more energized than I'd ever been, right? And then I took this job, the one that, you know, I found was someone found me through the New York Times. Mm-hmm. And a couple months into it, I had this revolution where I said, you know, I told my husband, I said, I had forgotten about the power structures that exist mm. within corporate America. And I had forgotten about the level of, I mean, this is crass. This is how my uncle would describe it. The level of eating shit and pretending you like it that you have to do when you yeah. work in these jobs. Like the, the, my last employer had, you know, every week we'd have this executive meeting and the CEO of the company would just go off the rails every single time. And this was one where you'd have to sit, I would be sitting there like, actively listen, look like you're actively listening, right? Be positive, but not too positive, like the whole <laughs> the whole thing. And if you did, I mean, the expectation was that you should say stuff. And the number of times I even got to finish a thought, I could probably count those in on one hand in a year and a mm. half of those meetings always being cut off, which is another thing that starts to chip away at your own confidence in this situation. And whether you realize it or not, it makes you start to recalibrate your performance, the way you perform around these people in these meetings, right? Yeah. And about six months ago, we had a new leader of the company come in. The CEO became chairman of the board, and this guy was CEO, and he was a really nice guy, but the chairman of the board still came to every meeting and screamed at us and humiliated us and berated us, and that's why I left the job, right? Mm -hmm. And the new CEO said to me, listen, Amanda, I think that you come into these meetings and you're too, like, positive and enthusiastic and collaborative. Think about the adjectives (laughs) I just threw out there, right? Isn't that what you would want in a leader, right? Seems that's what I want in a leader, right? He said, rather than focusing on, you know, being positive and what's going well and how you're fixing the things that aren't going well and like feeling like, you know, we've got a plan, we're doing this, you should come instead and focus on your failures and and, and be more meek and remorseful because that will appeal to him. He wants you to feel ashamed of what's not going well and to outwardly express that. And then he won't, he will be less likely to scream at you. That's insane. In- That's insane. <laughs> I know. And then you're, so then you're like, okay, well, how do I act that way? Right. As yeah. if I don't have a high level of accountability already. 
right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and we do, I mean, certainly within the workplace, we all know you approach people sometimes in a different way, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Based on their personalities, but there's a degree to which you do that. Right. You don't become meek and shameful. (laughs) I know. And personally, and I know that you would feel the same way. As a leader, I would never want someone on my team to feel like that's how they had to act around me. I would be very concerned if you want to empower people. Yes. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And so, but here I am be hearing this advice and being like, wow, you know, it's like crazy to think like I'm a couple decades into my career at this point. And You know, honestly, like in buying as what I've done as a career, often you're supposed to be kind of positive, like straightforward, but also like, here's the problem. Here's our plan to fix it. Here's our timeline and we're going to do it. And I'll update you in a few weeks. Like that kind of like, not, not toxic positivity, not unfounded positivity, but the, the, like, I'm on top of it. We got a plan. Mm -hmm. It's underway. That's what I want from my team, you know? So that's the culture I have been working in for all these years. And then to be like, no, come in and basically like have tear-stained cheeks, you know? Like you've been weeping all day. Look sad. And Yeah, and think about what that – let's say you did that, and you did that on a regular basis day after day after day, what that would do – to your psychological self. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And and to the people around you. And inevitably, there would be a moment where I would get a talking to about being too pathetic. Mm. That's the thing you can't win, right? Like, it's no. like, ah, uh, it's so, it's so frustrating. But, yeah, you know, I, yeah, I don't know. That was such a strange talk to get. And then I'd also, at another time, it was like, Yeah, the other executives in the meeting. So I'm in a leadership role at this point. Like I'm leading the entire product and creative strategy for a brand. So I'm in, that's why I'm in these executive meetings. But I'm part of like a, the brand that I work for was like own, is owned by a parent company. So the executives from that side are there as well. And so we're all in this meeting every week. And I don't have a lot of interaction with them per se outside of this. But I guess some of them were like, you know, like the thing about Amanda is like she's really charismatic. And does these great presentations and injects humor into it. And all the presentations look really good. This makes us think that she might not be very good at her job. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. At Amazon, they call that wavy hands. That all you have are wavy hands. You know, standing up in front of a room presenting. Yeah. Yeah, wild. But I'd be coming with like boundless amounts of data and other stuff that I, you know, Mm -hmm. like I'm very knowledgeable. And so I was like, so wait, should my presentation look less polished? Should I be more monotone and uninteresting? Like, I don't understand how I win this. Yeah. Well, I, you had said the word exhausted. Yeah. Um, And as I mentioned to you, I ended up trying to be a mini sociologist and I did a um, survey Mm -hmm. that I posted on LinkedIn and Instagram really because I wanted to know at the time when I was thinking through my career, was this just me? Right. You know, I mean, I had this unique circumstance of being widowed. I grew up in this very non-traditional environment on a hippie commune. Maybe this is my own issue. Right. And 
so the, one of the questions that I asked, like I, ex- I explained in it, the concept from the sociologist and then asked if people did that. And if so, how they did performances at work. And so some of the responses I got, actually the one that makes me laugh the most is somebody said they, right before a Zoom call, and of course, you know, a lot of us have been on Zooms over the pandemic, they smile before anybody else is on it. Uh. So that they'll look welcoming from the very point of connection. (laughs) Another person wrote about that. It's very hard for them to be authentic without offending people because they're direct. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I, there were all these examples and then I asked how playing a part made them feel. And they repeated the word that you said like over and over again, it's exhausting. I'm exhausted. I'm tired of the story. I'm burned out. I can't sustain this. Those are some of the answers that they wrote to that, which just made me so one, it made me know, okay, I'm, this is universal, (laughs) right? I'm not alone in this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is, it is exhausting, you know, and I think it feels like you can't win. Like Mm -hmm. I found, especially early in my career, but like honestly up until recent times that I often would kind of have to be sort of flirty with uh, men who are in higher level positions than me, like not so flirty, right? But flirty enough so that they, I don't know, would like me. And that was a weird act to have to put off because I'm not a very flirty person in the first place. Mm-hmm. But I saw that that was what was successful, right? And and then there's this other idea of like the performance you have to put on every day in terms of what you wear, how you look, what your desk looks like, even what you eat for lunch, where you eat for lunch, I would often work through lunch at one of my jobs and my boss was like, you know, you're not spending enough time with the team. You should come and eat lunch with everyone. And I was like, but I'm working and they're just talking about The Bachelor and I don't care, (laughs) you know, and like I have a lot of work to do. And isn't my lunchtime supposed to be like my time? (laughs) Okay. I swear to you, at one point in my career, I had a book that had a title that was something like eat first, cry later. (laughs) (laughs) It was exactly about if you wanted to get to the CEO level, like you needed to be out there making contacts, networking, eating lunch, (laughs) but it was written for women. And so I, Oh my God, that's embarrassing now to even think. I don't even think I read it. I think I got it. And then I was like, this is, this is bad. Well, you know, it's interesting because of course, over the years, especially starting in the eighties, there so many books were published that were, that walked that line between like self-help and career advice, all really targeted Mm -hmm. towards women. And they all gave the kind of advice that you and I have been talking about how that we heard, right? Like there's a reason these things get repeated over and over again. And basically the advice is do the performance. Don't be your genuine self and you will succeed. But it's almost Mm -hmm. like it's less about success and more about like harm reduction, specifically harm to you. (laughs) Like, yeah, you know, (laughs) like you have to play this game. And I mean, there have been so many, there are some books that are, are written targeting people of all genders that also give similar advice. But what I have noticed over the years when it comes to the kinds of things we're told as women 
or, you know, non-binary people, how we're supposed to act at work are different Mm -hmm. than the books that really seem to be targeting a male audience. Like for them, it's all about you got to be the winner and you got to dress for the job you want. And, you know, like it's all about like success, success, power, power, acting powerful, exerting power, you know. Mm -hmm. And for women, it's often like, you know, just like be nice, but not too nice and smile, so much smile. Dress this way, have this haircut, (laughs) have lunch with people, even though you like would rather work alone because you have stuff to do. And, you know, like just it's all about being a hostess at work. And it's, yeah, it's another layer of work. It it completely is another layer of work. You're not only, as you said earlier, you don't have performance reviews just about doing your job. It's the personality and the face that you wear while you do your job. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So I, as I said, I have definitely asked this of people that I've worked with because I've been trained that way. And I will have um, people from time to time that worked for me thank me for giving them the tools to get promoted. Um, and it's like, as a former leader, it's a wonderful thing when somebody sends you a note and says, Hey, I just got promoted to director Mm -hmm. this. You have a large part to do with this, with what you taught me. Um, but what I realized over time too, is that some of what I taught them propagates exactly what I've now realized is, is not a good thing to propagate. I mean, I had this brilliant woman report to me once who was very direct, never smiled, um, you know, probably neurodiverse in Mm. some way before we had that language. Right. And in her performance review, I said, you need to be more welcoming. You need to be warmer to people. Um, and she's since become a friend Mm -hmm. and we went on a hike together once. And in the car ride, I told her that weighed on me that I had said that to her. Now she had no memory of it, so I didn't scar her (laughs) for life, (laughs) but it really made me realize that when I did, when I do go back into the workplace, which is now soon different environment, of course, but I can't. I can't bring that mentality. Right. Like I have to change the performance that people demanded of me. I cannot demand that of other people as well. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's, that's a really good point that we sort of have to, all of us have to do the work of leaving those ideas behind. And it's, it's hard mm-hmm. because I've been hearing and saying these things for a long time now and living that way. You know, like to think about how much time we spend at work, often more than we spend with the people in our lives or doing anything else, thinking about how much time we're there and we're doing this performance there. It's so ingrained yeah. into it, right? It it becomes mm-hmm. like, like for me, one thing that I would hate, for example, as a buyer or or not hate, but just would be the most exhausting time for me is when I would have to go to a trade show. 
And so I would work all day with, you know, putting on that act as I meet with different vendors, prospective brands, that kind of stuff. Often I also have my team with me, right? And so I have to be that person for them. And, you know, early in my career, my boss might be there. So I got to put on the act for my boss. Later in my career, I have to be, I have to be the boss and put on that act, right? And it doesn't stop at the end of the day. It doesn't stop at 5 p.m. because maybe we have dinner with a vendor. So I got to keep going or I have to take my team out for dinner or, you know, and suddenly it's like I'm doing this for 12 hours out of a day for a week. Mm -hmm. And I also have to be that person when we're at the airport and when we're in the cab. And, you know, it, it would become so exhausting that I would come home and feel as if I couldn't physically do anything. Like I couldn't cook a meal. I wanted Mm -hmm. to just like drink and like eat chips or something and like lay still, (laughs) right? You see me, you see me. (laughs) Yeah, so I won, oh my God, trade shows. That's like an introvert's nightmare. Um, I had to do a lot of them. It was exhausting. But so what happens is then you come home and you have to numb yourself from the performance that you've put on. So you're not acting your authentic self at work and then you come home and you're not authentic for your family because you're, to your point, drinking and eating chips. That's totally what I did. (laughs) And when I, so I asked in my survey how people coped with the need to perform and that's what came up over and over. Like it was actually pretty depressing to read the results. Um, you know, people wrote, I drank, I drank too much drinking, alcohol, cocktails, crying, disassociation, like all these negative things that people do in their lives to compensate for the pretending, right. That they're exhausted by doing all day. It's so exhausting. Let's take a moment to thank some of the incredible small businesses who keep Clothes Horse going via their generous Patreon support. Selena Sanders, a social impact brand that specializes in upcycle clothing using only reclaimed vintage or thrifted materials from tea towels, linens, blankets, and quilts. Sustainably crafted in Los Angeles, each piece is designed to last in one's closet for generations to come. Maximum style, minimal carbon footprint. Shift clothing out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, with a focus on natural fibers, simple hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at shiftwheeler.com. Late to the party, creating one-of-a-kind statement clothing from vintage, salvaged, and thrifted textiles. They hope to tap into the dreamy memories we all hold. Floral curtains, a childhood dress, the wallpaper in your best friend's rec room all while creating modern, sustainable garments that you'll love wearing and have for years to come. Late to the Party is passionate about celebrating and preserving textiles, the memories they hold, and the stories they have yet to tell. Check them out on Instagram at Late to the Party People. Vino Vintage, based just outside of LA. We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Catch us at flea markets around Southern California by following us on Instagram at vino.vintage so you don't miss our next event. 
Gabriella Antonis is a visual artist, an upcycler, and a fashion designer. But Gabriella Antonis is also a feminist micro-business with radical ideals. She's the one-woman band trying to help you understand why slow fashion is what the world needs. If you find yourself in New Orleans, Louisiana, you may buy her ready-to-wear upcycle garments in person at the store Slow Down at 2855 Magazine Street. Slowdown Nola only sells vintage and slow fashion from local designers, and Gabriella's garments are guaranteed to be in stock in person, but they also have a website so you may support this woman-owned and run business from wherever you are. If you're interested in Gabriella making a one-of-a-kind garment for you, DM her on Instagram at slowfashiongabriella to book a consultation. Please follow her on Instagram at slowfashiongabriella. That's Gabriella with one L. Dylan Page is an online clothing and lifestyle brand based out of St. Louis, Missouri. Our products are chosen with intention for the conscious community. Everything we carry is animal-friendly, ethically made, sustainably sourced, and cruelty-free. Dylan Page is for those who never stop questioning where something comes from. We know that personal experience dictates what's sustainable for you, and we are here to help guide and support you to make choices that fit your needs. Check us out at dylanpage.com and find us on Instagram at dylanpagelifeandstyle. Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Find us on Instagram at Salt Hats. Gentle Vibes Vintage. We are purveyors of polyester and psychedelic relics. We encourage experimentation and play not only in your wardrobe, but in your home too. We have thousands of killer vintage pieces ready for their next adventure. See them all on Instagram at Gentle Vibes Vintage. Thumbprint is Detroit's only fair trade marketplace located in the historic Eastern Market. Our small business specializes in products handmade by empowered women in South Africa, making a living wage, creating things they love like hand-painted candles and ceramics. We also carry a curated assortment of sustainable and natural locally made goods. Thumbprint is a great gift destination for both the special people in your life and for yourself. Browse our online store at thumbprintdetroit.com and find us on Instagram at thumbprintdetroit. High Energy Vintage is a fun and funky vintage shop located in Somerville, Massachusetts, just a few minutes away from downtown Boston. They offer a highly curated selection of bright and colorful clothing and accessories from the 1940s to the 1990s for people of all genders. Husband and wife duo Wiley and Jessamy handpick each piece for quality and style with a focus on pieces that transcend trends and will find a home in your closet for many years to come. In addition to clothing, the shop also features a large selection of vintage vinyl and old school video games. Find them on Instagram at High Energy Vintage, online at HighEnergyVintage.com, and at markets in and around Boston. Vagabond Vintage DTLV is a vintage clothing, accessories, and decor reselling business based in downtown Las Vegas, Nevada. Not only do we sell in Las Vegas, but we're also located throughout resale markets in San Francisco, as well as at a curated boutique called Lux and Ivy located in Indianapolis, Indiana. 
Jessica, the founder and owner of Vagabond Vintage DTLV, recently opened the first IRL location located in the Arts District of downtown Las Vegas on August 5th. The shop has a strong emphasis on 60s and 70s garments, single-stitch tees, and dreamy loungewear. Follow them on Instagram at Vagabond Vintage DTLV and keep an eye out for their website coming fall of 2022. So I was telling you that like I had recently gotten some sort of push notification from I don't know like HuffPost or something that was like women are drinking more than ever. And mm. you know and I was like yeah. Yeah, I'm not surprised to hear that because I've worked at a lot of places where drinking at work was ex- was acceptable. I mean not like drinking at 9 a.m. at work, but certainly mm-hmm. after lunch you could even start. It wasn't abnormal if if it was like someone's last day, which at some jobs I've had, it's always someone's last day. Um, yeah. It wasn't abnormal for us to be drinking champagne at like two o'clock, you know? And then yeah. I had one job where we had a refrigerator full of wine in the office and we would start drinking at four every day, which makes me feel sick thinking about it now. But that was like, uh-huh. that was how I coped with it. And, yeah. and I did the same thing. I mean, Pinot Grigio to the max, yeah. for sure. So many of my friends are basically what I would call winos. They're just drinking wine every night after work, you know, drinking a whole bottle. And it's it's normalized. Or like maybe you go have happy hour with your friends where you finally get to like let some of it out, some of the yeah. frustrations of the day. I mean, some places, honestly, some places I've worked, I have felt so isolated because I didn't have a coworker I could go do that with. And it almost made me more exhausted mm. than other places I'd worked where I could go out for drinks with a couple friends and we could be like, oh, this place is so stupid. You know? <laughs> yeah. Well, when you're suppressing your true self. Yeah. I mean, that's an exhausting thing to do. And I think the, for me, what would happen is I would come home and drink and eat. Cause when I drink, I eat. Mm-hmm. And then I really wasn't being present. You know, I'm, I'm a mom of two. I really wasn't being present for my kids because of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it took quite a while to change that behavior. I actually ended up just just stopping drinking completely for a couple of years. Not as much because I felt I had a significant problem, but more because I was thinking, what is this really, how is it benefiting me? Right. It's just taking away from me. It's making me unhealthy Mm -hmm. um, mentally and physically, and I'm not being present for my family. Um, So I needed to address the work stress. Mm Mm-hmm in different ways than the, than the drinking, which I, you know, I think is becoming more and more prevalent that some women are looking at their lives and saying, yeah, how is this serving me? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, which I think is great. You know, I follow this subreddit that's called LinkedIn lunatics and <laughs> I don't, I'm sure you've spent time on LinkedIn recently because you were looking for a job, right? Mm-hmm. And it is the stuff I see on there sometimes. I'm like, this is, who are these people? Because it, like, you know, the posts are really about like work should be your most important thing, where you find your satisfaction, hustle. 
anyway, LinkedIn Lunatics is where people post the most ridiculous things that they, screenshots of the most ridiculous posts they've seen on there, where it'll be like, you know, my wife was in labor and I had to make the call between like staying there with her or doing this emergency meeting with a client. And you know what I did? I did the meeting with the client and here I am with my baby and life is great, right? You got to do what it takes or, you know, like just the, the hustle, the grind culture, that kind of stuff. It's all nonsensical. What people really don't talk about on LinkedIn, I've never seen a post about it. I would be so excited if I did, is I'm really exhausted. And I Mm -hmm. come home every night and sit on the couch and drink a boozy seltzer and watch TV. And I don't do anything else because I have nothing (laughs) left to give. Yeah. And you know, I mean, no one is alone in that. Right, right. right, Everybody's doing it, but they're not posting about it. They're posting the the type, I've, I've got to check out that. Oh, I know it will it will inspire fabulous. you it's it's incredible and you know sometimes I'm like are these people writing works of fiction on there I don't know like just that there are people who are like I'm a LinkedIn influencer like what is that mm-hmm. <laughs> you know <laughs> what, <laughs> what is that mean? yeah yeah and and so, and really what we're seeing is people write these like propaganda pieces about how work is so important and and how if the six you know it's the the classic like if you work really hard you will be successful. That's that, the end. Like we really live in a meritocracy, which we know is also not true. And it's the the conversation is always like, you should basically prioritize work over everything else and then you will be successful, oh, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, as if there aren't other ways that you could be successful in life as well, right? Yeah. Um, so Jeff Bezos has a couple um, of quotes that have always stuck with me as examples of give me a break, um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> so one is you can work long, hard or smart, but at Amazon, you can't choose two out of the three. Oh, you have to do so all three. You have to do all three. And then <sighs> that quote eventually goes on to say, we're working to build something important, something that we can tell our grandchildren about. And I think when I read that quote, I was like, I'm not going to be talking to my grandchildren about work, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like there are more important things in life to talk to them about when that time comes. I don't have grandchildren right now. I mean, um, imagine just being like, let me tell you what we did at Amazon today. No one cares. Literally yeah. No one cares. Yes. Yeah. Read uh, the room, Jeff. Yeah. Read the room. Yeah. I mean, that kind of thing. I was thinking a couple of weeks ago, I was thinking about how for a while it was really hip and it probably started with like Amazon or Google or something that your your company had to have a mission, right? Like a mission statement mm-hmm. that, you know, at your all hands meeting, everyone would chant aloud together, right? And at Nasty Gal, of course, we had one of those missions. And, you know, here we're, we're selling fast fashion clothing. We are, which certainly involves the exploitation of many, many young women around the world, women in general around the world. And mm-hmm. we're all uh, really overworked and everybody's having stress-related maladies like stomach issues, eczema. One, one person was having this weird temporary blindness that would come when she was stressed out at work. And, you know, oh she gosh. had a million tests done and they were just like, well, our best advice is you should quit your job. And she's 27 years old, right? And having this mm-hmm. weird intermittent blindness in one eye related to stress. And so we're all very ill and like drinking and doing God knows what else to like cope with it. And every all hands meeting, we have to chant the mission statement, which is like, it's written in the wall of our cafeteria where no one actually gets to go eat lunch because we're working all the time. 
And it's like, our mission is to help young women live their best lives. And it was like, first off, that is vaguely word salad, if you want my honest opinion. (laughs) Um, Is that supposed to make us want to work more? Uh, That we're somehow doing this charitable endeavor by doing what we're Mm -hmm. doing. And the irony is that the staff here is like 99.9% female, except for the executives, of course. Of course. And we are, spoiler, not not living our best lives. Like, you know, we're all like crying. There's There's one bathroom. That, well, there are two bathrooms, right? And one is where you go and it's a normal doing your business situation. And there's another bathroom on the other end of the office that is for crying or vomiting or having stress diarrhea. Like that's mm-hmm. that's what you go there for when your life is falling mm-hmm. apart. You see a friend go in there and you're like, oh man, like, okay, what's going on? I'm going to check in with her when she comes back, you know? And it's just like, we're here chanting some nonsense mission that like is supposed to make us want to grind harder. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, you know, Amazon's so known for their leadership principles and there are plenty of companies who will write out leadership principles and put them on a wall in a boardroom, but at Amazon, it's actually incorporated into daily conversation, What? which is bizarre. So as an example, when I first started there, again, hired in at a senior level because of my experience and background, I was given this project to basically start a business from scratch in a segment of business that I knew could not be successful. <laughs> Great. Fun job. <laughs> so I told you know my manager, hey, this won't work for these reasons. Why don't you give me a couple weeks? to explore what could work and I'll come back to you with a plan. And his response was, Rachel, you're not showing enough bias for action. What does that even mean? (laughs) Bias for action is an Amazon principle that essentially indicates that you are going to move quickly, demonstrate action on your projects to move them forward. And it was more important to him for me to show that I could move this project forward quickly than for it to actually be successful. Uh, and that's all day long there. Uh-huh. People taking the leadership, like if you have a disagreement with someone on something, they may say, you know, you're not showing enough ownership on this project, which is another leadership principle. Um, yeah, it's, it's a unique experience for sure. Um, Amazon corporate life. But, you know, one of the things I did want to comment on, because granted, there's a lot of toxicity in corporate life, um, but there are perks that come with it as well. And I think you and I both uh, in different parts of our life have also done service work, Mm -hmm. uh, wage work, and particularly in the service industry, the same issues exist in terms of what is expected from an individual for their performance. And yet they're generally paid a lot less. It's true. um, For that and treated more poorly. So I definitely, you know, while my, my, the last three decades, my experience has been more in boardrooms. I've also been that server. I've also been that cashier um, and I myself, as well as seeing others, have seen what's expected of people, which what I've seen is more degradation for less 
cash for sure. <laughs> yeah. No, it's true. It's true. And in fact, a lot of the performance sort of stuff you have to do in an office job, you also have to do in stores, mm -hmm. in restaurants. You know, something that really struck me from your essay was when you talked about, oh, I love the story. Will you tell the story of the $2 tip? Oh, yeah. This is everyone who's <laughs> ever been a server. This is like yeah. what you, you yeah. the number of times I have wanted to do this. Yes. So I, uh, I worked in a lot of restaurants to pay my way through college. And, um, in college, one was called Spaghetti Freddy's, which was like a complete ripoff of Olive Garden. <laughs> you know, they had the unlimited breadsticks and everything. Mm -hmm. Um, and at one point I had waited on this table that was two couples. Their bill, I think came to around $60 and, and, you know, this was a while ago. I don't mean to date myself, but I graduated in 91. So this is a while ago. So that was like a big bill for a Spaghetti Freddy's Olive Garden type restaurant. Um, and I came to the table to clear it and they had left me. And this was also the days of cash where people actually paid with cash instead of a card. They left me $2 is <sighs> a tip. Yeah. And I didn't even really think about it. I just took the $2 and speed walked out into the parking lot. They weren't in their cars yet. I found them. And I just held the $2 out and said something to the effect of, this is so insulting. You can have it back. And they were stunned. Like they just looked at me for a while. And then one of the men said, great. And he took the $2 back. <laughs> Wow. And I, yeah, I know. So when I went back to the restaurant feeling so vindicated, you know, I wasn't really concerned that I would be fired, even though that completely was a fireable offense, right? I should have just grinned and bared it, <sighs> what management would think. Right. I think if that couple had called, um, and I would have heard about it. I, I would have had to do some tap dancing for sure. Mm -hmm. um, but I, that was a moment that the veneer cracked, right? That I couldn't take it anymore. But 99% of the time, we all would have just put the tip in our uh, aprons and moved on. Well, I'm really proud of you because the number of times <laughs> I have wanted to do that but been afraid. And here's the thing. Maybe that guy was like, oh, good, or whatever. Uh, they were ashamed. <laughs> I promise you. They thought about that for a while. So I'm really proud of you. Like that, what you did is the exact opposite of what we're ever allowed to do in any job. And yeah, it would be a fireable offense. I'm not mm -hmm. sure what the corporate version of giving the $2 back would be, but that kind of, I don't know, sort of like advocating for yourself uh, yeah, is not yeah. generally encouraged, even though, you know, you'll read tons of like in these, in the essays and advice books about how to be successful in your career to be like, you need to advocate for yourself. You need to negotiate your salary. You need to push back. You need to ask for what you're worth, et cetera, et cetera. But like, really you're discouraged from doing that. <laughs> You know, yeah. you know, the number of times I have been in a situation where I'm doing hiring and someone pushes back on the salary negotiation as they should, because I'm probably offering some of them something ludicrously low, because that's what my boss said I had to do. Uh, and then I go to my boss about it and they're like, 
are they even worth it? They better be worth it. Like, they're so angry. Or, like, you just need to wait them out and they'll be desperate enough to take that money. Like, that's the thing. Like, we're told to advocate for ourselves, but then we're actively also discouraged from advocating for ourselves. And it goes back to this, like, you just, you just can't win. No. And there's, I mean, there's certainly, we've all had the abusive boss. Um, An abusive customer is almost worse because you're supposed to accept the customer, right? (laughs) The customer is always right. I mean, I remember being on a contract negotiation call where the customer was not happy with where it was going and called me a moron on the call, which did like, did nothing to help them move the negotiation. No, no. Right. It is true though. I mean, even honestly, like one, you know, spoiler for anyone who didn't know this, the customer is actually not always right. Mm -hmm. Um, And at least 50% of the time is probably wrong, but there would even be times where, you know, I'm working as a buyer, right. I'm buying stuff from vendors for my company. And I would sort of be like, Hey, I think y'all need to remember that I'm the customer here and I'm right. You know? (laughs) So like we, I have used it to my advantage at certain times. I mean, but I also would never call someone a moron or treat someone that way. But it Mm -hmm. is true that often when you're working retail or serving, you get the, you get the worst trickle down in terms of like from corporate in terms of how you're supposed to behave like with your coworkers. And then that's combined with like having to deal with customers who treat you like garbage. Yeah. Um, Like when you actually started out and were working in the stores, I'm sure you had experiences with customers where you just had to put a smile on your face and deal with their attitude. Yeah. I mean, a customer one time pulled my hair as I was walking <gasps> by to get my attention. And I couldn't be like, if imagine if that happened out at a bar, you could say something, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I had to be like, oh, well, how can I help you? You know, or another time a customer hit me in the face with this package of curtains, but it had like a sharp edge on it and it cut my face. Um, and like purposefully hit you? Yes, yeah, she because she thought they were on sale and they weren't. I mean, once who would behave that way? But that's <laughs> the thing. Like all of my friends and, you know, family members who are still working in customer service, maybe just started it, my friends who are flight attendants, who work in restaurants, who work in any level of retail, they're dealing with this stuff to like times 10 at this point. Yeah. It's it's worse than ever. And then at the same time, that weird, like, like I remember specifically when I was working retail, it was like, in addition to having to deal with customers being just like behaving wildly. I can't believe the stuff I've seen and experienced. But on top of that, then there would be the corporate culture stuff of like, yeah, the district manager here was here and he just doesn't think you smile enough. Mm -hmm. He doesn't think you're like enough. You are passionate about the brand. Yeah, Uh, you're getting it from both ends. Right, you're not wearing enough clothes from here. So no one thinks you really like, like want to stick around. So you're Mm. telling me, oh, to seem like I love it here and want a promotion, I need to give the company money out of my paycheck in exchange for clothing? (laughs) Like, it's just just as nonsensical, right? And so it's almost, I would say, I mean, obviously it's way more physically exhausting to work those jobs, but it's also more emotionally exhausting because you have to navigate two different sets of people Mm -hmm. and the rules of navigating that. Yeah, and I... I think it teaches people not to care, right? Because if you care, it's going to hurt. Right. And so the only way to make it not hurt is to not care. And who wants to be in any type of role 
where you have to turn off your goals, your ambitions, Mm -hmm. caring about the job. Yeah, it's true. I remember actually having a conversation when I was a department manager working retail with someone on my team. And he said, listen, I'm having a really hard time with this because I am a really sensitive person. I'm really empathetic and things are happening here all the time that upset me to a point that I don't, I can't keep being, acting like everything's okay. And, you know, greeting every customer comes in and smiling and being like, this is the best thing ever because it's really hard. And I was like, yeah, I know. And he was like, well, do you have any advice? And I was like, no, I really don't. (laughs) You know, like I struggle in the same way. You know, I don't want to not care. I do care. Um, That's Mm -hmm. how I am as a person. And it's really hard, you know, Uh, maybe try drinking more. Yeah. Oh, man. Well, when I was working at the Amazon warehouse, there were two women who were moms who we had gone through training together. And so we worked the same shift. And whenever we had our break, we would spend our break together. And I would just, they knew I had worked at Amazon corporate. Um, You know, I wasn't doing anything undercover. Mm -hmm. So I'd ask them a lot of questions because I was just so curious about their path and how they ended up working at the warehouse. Um, And one of the women had said that she had been a cashier, but that the public had gotten so rude, she just didn't want to do it anymore. Like she would much rather be in this position where you're, you know, doing the same movements, processing this horrible fast fashion clothes every day versus interacting with people because of just how rude, unfortunately, yeah, our public has gotten. I don't know how people do it. One of my friends is a flight attendant for Southwest, and she mm. has been for a long time. And I just, I don't know how she does it. I really, mm-hmm. because I, I see it when I'm a passenger, you know, and how people, it. I see an escalation for sure in what it is to work in a public-facing role at this point. And mm-hmm. that you know, when I left my job, I had a lot of fear. I still have it that I'm going to have to go work retail again, not because uh, I think I'm too good for it, or I think it's not real work or valid work or anything like that, because I'm afraid of having to deal with people. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. I, I totally get that. I mean, I guess where I am is after contemplating this and really thinking about essentially how I showed up, for almost three decades, (laughs) you know, of my life. And now I'm, I've had these two years to be back in school, which has been such a gift, Mm -hmm. but now I'm going back into the workplace. I'm just very attuned to not falling back into the same patterns and behaviors and, and essentially naming it. Like if somebody asks it of me, you know, naming that they're asking for a performance and making sure that I don't ask anybody who reports to me or who comes to me for advice, making sure that they don't have to perform Mm -hmm. as well. That's my, that's my commitment to myself. Well, I think that's a great transition into the next question I wanted to ask you is, you know, this, this kind of like performance 
it's like at this point it's being handed it's been handed down to several generations of workers right mm-hmm. do we think the future can be different a future where we don't act and we are our true selves and theoretically uh we are happier and possibly more productive do you think that future can happen i do um i think it's going to take a while mm-hmm. but i think a few things are going on that give me hope i think the generation, you know, I'm generation X. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the generations behind me coming up behind me have different expectations of work. Um, and work is changing, right? The pandemic mm-hmm. has changed the landscape of work. And so much of what was once in person is now remote, um, which allows people a lot more flexibility. I mean, the, the job that, I'm starting, um, in a, in a week or so, uh, is a fully remote role. Congratulations. That's great. The office is here in Seattle. Yeah. Um, and so I think that allows people to find, you know, I mean, it can, it can have the opposite effect too of no balance, but it can also allow you to find balance, um, and show up in the way that you want to show up. And then just with younger generations, having these more demands of, um, fully remote work, mm-hmm. casual work, not being as committed, right, to stay at a company for 10 years. Uh, it's going to push the people who are running the show now to think about it differently. And then those people are going to age out. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I do, you know, I don't know where this is going, but obviously I think of our economic system of which, you know, I've totally benefited from by being in corporations that have stock. I've completely have benefited from, but things have to change because the imbalance is getting more and more severe. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's not, it's not working. Nope. (laughs) Um, and I don't know how it falls apart. I don't know what that future system looks like, but I keep reminding myself that capitalism isn't set in stone, right? That it was, is an experiment and we are actually a really young country. Mm -hmm. Um, and things could change. Like we can't take for granted that how things are today is what's going to be in the future. So it may not be within my lifetime, but I think between climate change and different expectations from different generations, um, that there will be in the future wholesale change and hopefully for the positive. If you're enjoying this episode, then this is a great time to remind you that my work here at Close Horse is made possible by the support of listeners like you, just like NPR, and these great small businesses. Please go give them your support. Blank Cass, or Blanket Coats by Cass, is focused on restoring, renewing, and reviving the history held within vintage and heirloom textiles by embodying the love, craft, and energy that is original to each vintage textile as I transfer it into a new garment, I hope we can reteach ourselves to care for and mend what we have and make it last. Blank Cass lives on Instagram at blank underscore Cass and a website will be launched soon at blankcass.com. 
Located in Whistler, Canada, Velvet Underground is a velvet jungle full of vintage and secondhand clothing, plants, a vegan cafe, and lots of rad products from other small sustainable businesses. Our mission is to create a brand and community dedicated to promoting self-expression, as well as educating and inspiring a more sustainable and conscious lifestyle, both for the people and the planet. Find us on Instagram at shop underscore velvet underground or online at www.shopvelvetunderground.com. St. Evans is a New York City based vintage shop that is dedicated to bringing you those special pieces you'll reach for again and again. More than just a store, St. Evans is dedicated to sharing the stories and history behind the garments. 10% of all sales are donated to a different charitable organization each month. New vintage is released every Thursday at wearstevens.com with previews of new pieces and more brought to you on Instagram at where underscore st dot evens. That's where St. Evans. Country Feedback is a mom and pop record shop in Tarboro, North Carolina. They specialize in used rock, country, and soul and offer affordable vintage clothing and housewares. Do you have used records you want to sell? Country Feedback wants to buy them. Find us on Instagram at Country Feedback Vintage and Vinyl or head down east and visit our brick and mortar. All are welcome at this inclusive and family-friendly record shop in the country. Republica Unicornia Yarns. Handmade yarn and notions for the color obsessed. Made with love and some swearing in fabulous Atlanta, Georgia by head yarn wench Kathleen. Get ready for rainbows with a side of giving a damn. Republica Unicornia is all about making your own magic using small batch, responsibly sourced, hand-dyed yarns, and thoughtfully made notions. Slow fashion all the way down and discover the joy of creating your very own beautiful hand-knit, crocheted, or woven pieces. Find us on Instagram at republica underscore unicornia underscore yarns and at www.republicaunicornia.com. Picnic Wear, a slow fashion brand ethically made by hand from vintage and dead stock materials, most notably vintage towels. Founder Danny has worked in the industry as a fashion designer for over 10 years, but started Picnic Wear in response to her dissatisfaction with the industry's shortcomings. Picnic Wear recently moved to rural North Carolina, where all their sewing and accessories are now designed and cut, but the majority of their sewing is done by skilled garment workers in New York City. Their customers take comfort in knowing that all their sewists are paid well above New York City minimum wage. Picnic Wear offers minimal waste and maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. Cute Little Ruin is an online shop dedicated to providing quality vintage and secondhand clothing, vinyl, and home items in a wide range of styles and price points. If it's ethical and legal, we try to find a home for it. Vintage style with progressive values. Find us on Instagram at Cute Little Ruin. Is there a little bit of Italy in your soul? Are you an enthusiast of pre-loved decor and accessories? Bring vintage Italian style and history into your space with the pewter thimble. We source useful and beautiful things 
and mend them where needed. We also find gorgeous illustrations and make them print-worthy. Tarot cards, tea towels, and hand-picked treasures available to you from the comfort of your own home. Responsibly sourced from across Rome, lovingly renewed by fairly paid artists and artisans, with something for every budget. Discover more at thepewterthimble.com. Deco Denim is a startup based out of San Francisco, and it sells clothing and accessories that are sustainable, gender fluid, size inclusive, and high quality, made to last for years to come. Deco Denim is trying to change the way you think about buying clothes. Founder Sarah Mattis wants to empower people to ask important questions like, where was this made? Was this garment made ethically? Is this fabric made of plastic? Can this garment be upcycled? And if not, can it be recycled? Sign up at decodenim.com to receive $20 off your first purchase. They promise not to spam you and send out no more than three emails a month, with two of them surrounding education or a personal note from the founder. Again, that's decodenim.com. I think we're having a lot more conversations about this, despite what the LinkedIn lunatics would tell you. <laughs> um, and you really have to go check out. It's wild. I'm totally, yeah. Uh, I totally, yeah. I wrote it down. You're going to lose a few hours <laughs> going down oh, the no. rabbit hole, as I did the first time I found it. Um, but I, I do believe that more and more of us are realizing that perhaps work is not where we find our meaning in life. Work is not our ultimate mission, right? No matter how many mission statements our employers might want to throw out there, that perhaps the meaning and our purpose has nothing to do with that. And really, mm-hmm. work is more transactional, which is not to say that you shouldn't take pride in your work, in your career, and your successes there, but that maybe there's more outside of that. And I think that that is really that line of thinking is really anathema to what we've seen for the past 50, 60, 100 years, right? Mm-hmm. Where it has been all about like pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and this illusion that this this country is a meritocracy and all you need to do is to succeed is work really, really hard and sacrifice things. And, you know, a couple months ago, I listened to, a, I binged a podcast about Kathy, the comic character, oh. uh, which I would recommend. I think you would really enjoy it, actually. Okay. Um, it's called the Ack Cast. Um, and, you know, I had always dismissed Kathy as like, oh, I don't know. It's like some like not very funny cartoon that's in the newspaper. I think it's for older ladies or something. I don't know what I thought, <laughs> but I was like, it seems like there's like a lot of diet culture and acting and it does, I don't understand it, right? And that was just where I was. My now my friend Mary was always like, no, I love Kathy. You need to give Kathy a chance. And I'd be like, oh, you're just being <laughs> ironic or you like wearing 80s clothes, whatever. And uh, I listened to this podcast and I really had like, like, honestly, I'm not going to go order all the Kathy books right now, but I'm constantly keeping my eye out for them when I'm thrifting because mm-hmm. now I'm interested because it's a really great document of what it was to be a woman working in corporate culture, specifically for boomers, right? And why, you know, they were hearing the same sort of nonsense that we've heard in our careers, perhaps even more than anything. This is where a lot of it began because they were feeling it out right? And Mm. trying to find their path forward. And so a lot of early Kathy is really about 
Kathy, the character, existing in that world and being frustrated, Mm -hmm. Um, which was very eye-opening for me. Um, once again, I just thought it was about how she didn't want to buy bathing suits or something. I don't know what I thought Kathy was, but I, you know, and, uh, I, you know, I think back and I really do think like women from the boomer generation really are what started what it is to be uh, a woman in the workplace in a real significant Mm way. And at Mm -hmm. that point, the culture was you have to play along. It's a boys club. So you either need to, you know, be flirty and demure and cute, but not too cute. Or you have to act like, if you're a leader, you have to act like one of them, right? And that's like mm-hmm. where a lot of like the the 2000s girl boss thinking is like, you got to just be just like the men and then everything will be fine. But the reality was that perhaps th- those men weren't great leaders in the first place, right? They're, they're uh, the way they approached the people who worked for them and their companies as a whole, how they functioned was perhaps not healthy or efficient, mm-hmm. you know? And so women were kind of, when they joined careers, like boomer women, they had to play those roles. And they were gradually handed down to us, maybe with a little bit of different language, but definitely for e- even me in in fashion where most of your coworkers are women, but the executives are almost always men. Uh, you have to play that game and you have to behave differently around your coworkers and your managers who are women versus the mm-hmm. men who are in charge. And you would see your your boss who who you were terrified of, right? Who who would tell you things like you're, you know, you have an attitude or something, go into these meetings and they would suddenly become like demure girls who were clearly wearing the mask of like, I'm listening, but not listening too hard and not judging what you're saying and like talking in a different voice that was less knowledgeable and commanding and more I don't know, pleasant, perhaps, Yeah, you know, pleasing, I guess. And I think about like how it is really on us to make those changes because they keep, they keep carrying on through the generations. They totally do. Yeah. I, in the last year, one of the books I read was Stud uh, Turkle's, Stud's Turkle's Working, Mm -hmm. which is like a huge book. Huge. Um, Yeah. It's, it's so big that was written in 1972. And it just, I mean, I'm sure most people are familiar with it, right? It just profiles all these different people in different types of work. And when I was reading it, you know, I'm, I'm holding it right now and I'm like flipping through it and it's just underlined, underlined, underlined. Cause what really struck me is that themes haven't changed since 1972. I mean, sure. There's been some evolution, but the ultimate pain about work has not changed. Um, <laughs> That's interesting. And he has this quote, you know, he has this quote at the very beginning that says the blue collar blues is no more bitterly sung than the white collar moan. I'm a machine says the spot welder. I'm caged says the bank teller. Uh, yeah. And it just, when I read this, it just, my mind was like, oh yeah, this is like, these are not new issues. No, nope, no. Nope. You know, a feeling like we are robots, whether our work is physical or mental. So I have a friend who um, also went back to school uh, for her grad degree at the same time I did. And she went back to be a um, counselor in higher education. So for like college students, career counseling. Um, and we were taking a walk, I don't know, a couple months ago. And, I, you know, I was talking to her about my pending job search. And she said to me, one of the things she learned was that, 
you know, you choose to, whether you're going to have a job, a career or a passion, Mm -hmm. um, and having her bucket it that way. I mean, it's so simplistic, but it really helped me because I know my passion is writing. Mm -hmm. Um, and I know it is really hard to make a living (laughs) (laughs) off writing. And if I have a career again, I am not going to have the energy for my passion, mm-hmm. which is why my decision um, moving forward was that I would get a job so that I have creative energy left for my passion. And, and I, I, I probably won't, unless my writing goes anywhere and then becomes a career, I probably won't have a career again. And I'm okay with that. Like you leave some ego mm-hmm. on the table to say, yeah, I'm not going to be a director at this big company. I'm going to take this more low-level position because I won't have to be up at 10 o'clock at right. night answering that executive email. I won't have to be up at 5 a.m. in the morning to see if he, usually he, mm-hmm. responded. Um, so it's, you know, resetting um, how I'm going to move forward in my life. I mean, I love that. You know, I for so many of us, we spent year after year striving to reach the top, right? Mm-hmm. That's just that's how it is. It's like every, it's the it's the format of any game you play, right? And so it's not unlike <laughs> that, right? It's like about moving up the levels, right? And when I finally got up there, it was wildly disappointing to me that mm-hmm. I didn't feel like I had done much. There were certainly people who were impressed when they heard what I did, but it didn't, it didn't feel good. Um, I was maybe more unhappy. And even this huge satisfaction of my ego that I I thought would happen at that point, I was like, no, I still feel like an imposter. I'm really anxious. I'm still being asked to be pretend I'm meek and and remorseful in meetings. I mean, like it didn't it didn't it didn't get better. You know, I made mm-hmm. more money, not a lot more money, honestly. And like what I do, you're always underpaid and overworked, and that's also just a symptom of late stage capitalism, I suppose. But I never had a lot of financial security, despite that, and I certainly still was answering emails at midnight and getting up at four or five to get ready to present something to, you know, probably a man who wasn't going to listen to me talk or let me finish my sentences. And I think that I had this moment this year where I was like, I don't care about having a career anymore. Like, it's just what I thought would happen when I got there didn't happen. Mm -hmm. And yeah. And look at, look at where you are now. You, are an example of someone who is pursuing their passion, Mm -hmm. who also has maybe a job slash career, but not in the conventional sense, Mm -hmm. right? Like in a way that works for you. Um, Yeah. I I mean, I think that's what there's going to be a lot more of, of not people going into the office doing just one thing, but creating a roadmap that works better for them. And I, you know, I want to be honest that I know that like not everybody has those choices, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, like, it's not like you and I have not worked hard to get to where we are, but we probably had choices along the way um, and benefits and not everybody has that. So it, um, it's definitely not the same 
story across the board. Right. But I do think that people, you know, when you read these articles about like quiet quitting or whatever, Mm -hmm. what that really is, is people putting work in perspective. Right. Right. And I, I, that is the irony of it all. I'm like, nobody's quitting anything except for quitting thinking that their job should be their life's purpose. Yeah. You know, it's, it's not quitting. It's, it's starting to draw boundaries and sticking to them. Yeah. And being, yeah. Thank you for that. It's such a stupid, it's so stupid. I hate it. I hate it. And, you know, I've had to listen to like executives go on tirades about how like, this quiet quitting thing is people being lazy and that's why we're bringing them mm-hmm. back to the office because they're all quitting, quiet quitting and we need to keep an eye on them. And I was like, please, when I had to start working in the office again, I was like, oh my God, I'm like 10 times more exhausted because now I have to put on the act all day and mm-hmm. I don't have time to get my work done because someone's always come over and talking to me. Like, it sucks. Yeah. Um, I feel like we are we are in the midst of a big change in terms of attitudes about work, about office life, whether you even need to be there. But there are people who are resistant to that change. And unfortunately, they have all the power, like Amazon having to go back to, to the office, for example. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you have many friends who have many feelings about that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And it's what I found is it's super inconsistent. Right. Like some teams do have to go back and other teams, the manager is just sort of looking the other way because they want to keep their team happy, um, which, you know, on the one hand is good for that team, yeah. but not good for the other people I know who are impacted by it. Yeah. 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 I, uh, at my last job, we, you know, we worked remote like for a, a year and a half and then the the CEO was really hung up on this idea that people, our business would be better if we were working at the office. And so mm-hmm. we had to start coming in. And really what happened is we got a lot less done. And uh, he would come around periodically throughout the day and walk through. It was very odd. Our pod had one doorway, right? So you wouldn't, like, you couldn't cut through it. So if you were being a weirdo, which he was, he would walk into the pod walk to the back of it and turn around and leave. And it was so odd because he couldn't have been more clear that he was just seeing if we were working. You know, (laughs) we're all adults. Better check and see if we're working. Unfortunately, the people who have the most power in corporate structure right now uh, are the ones who are holding fast to these old-fashioned ideas about work, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And that that is something that uh, gives me a little bit of anxiety, um, even though inevitably won't they retire someday but yeah like rupert murdoch just stepped down and he's 92 okay yeah i know know. well look at our politicians my gosh exactly exactly Yeah. yeah so i just don't i want to believe it and i think the the way forward is really for us to be talking about it more Mm -hmm. um because we're normalizing it yeah Yeah. we're all kind of like silently experiencing all of this and to be fair this goes back to the same sort of training we've all had that no one at work should ever know anything that's going on in your head basically Mm -hmm. (laughs) it should always be like the same neutral tone to everything um but that brings me to the last thing i just wanted to talk to you about before we started recording you said you know there isn't a lot of it's not that there's not appetite out there but there isn't a lot of like publishing happening around stories around about work Mm-hmm. And I thought that that was so interesting because it, how I feel is that so many people want to read that. They want, they want a counterpoint to the LinkedIn lunatics. 
Completely. Yeah. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. Well, I was mentioning that a new book on Amazon, um, working at the corporate office recently came out from Christy Coulter, um, that was published last week and I read it over the weekend and I felt so seen (laughs) by her experiences as a woman in Amazon and, Uh, I have been writing a lot of essays about work and they're not, you know, New York times journalistic type essays or Harvard business review. Mm -hmm. This is how you should be a leader essays. They're more literary to be in literary magazines. But what I found is that a lot of literary magazines, you know, think work is a boring topic. And yet it's this (laughs) universal thing that we all experience that, to your point, if we are talking about the difficulties within it, um, the struggles that could be improved more, um, there, there could be changes. And so I keep doing that. I'm going to continue to write about the things that I'm passionate about, uh, and hope that we can break down the wall in terms of both literary books, Mm -hmm. not how to write at work, Um, but literary books about the work experience, because it's such a big part of our day of our lives. And yet, uh, we're sort of, we're putting it aside and dismissing it as something that should be talked about. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, going back to Kathy, I didn't know I'd be talking about Kathy so much this week, (laughs) but, uh, the earlier this week we were trying to explain Kathy to my daughter, (laughs) Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, they were like, well, it's, it's, uh, this seems vaguely familiar to me. And I was like, no, you got to listen to this podcast. Anyway, um, you know, the Kathy era of talking like these comics that were really about like frustration and work being in the workplace as a woman and, and the acts you have to do. Kathy was wildly popular. Like the artist behind Kathy made approximately a gazillion dollars in the 80s and 90s through licensing because mm. so many people were like, Kathy is this is this is me. I'm Kathy, you know, um, and if you couldn't see proof then that people had an appetite for this kind of conversation, for this kind of reading and uh, writing, why I I'm I'm ready for it. The time is, yeah. now. you know, the time is now. Well, I, I totally have to check out Kathy again because I'm in my head. I just remember this comic about this really glum individual, <laughs> although with the context now that you're giving me now, I know why she came across as so glum. Well, she clearly didn't have out. a good performance review where they told her to smile more, <laughs> uh, which like once again, I, you know, the, I guess I just wanted to end things by just talking about performance reviews for a moment because I obviously I've I've had to give and receive so many of these in my career and I'm sure you have as well, right? And they really are not fun for anyone involved. Mm-hmm. And when you are the manager, you're like, oh, this again. It's so much work. It's so performative, right? Mm-hmm. The performance reviews. Um, and I don't know about you, but like the way I had been trained on writing these performance reviews is that you should almost never give someone a high score. That mm. if you gave them a high score, that meant they needed to be promoted immediately. And you would only do that if that was actually possible. And so you needed to score them down on things. Um, and it really raised the bar to get like 
five in, in a one out of five situation, you would have to be like just this next level that we've never even seen in our lives, right? Mm-hmm. And if you couldn't find something to give them some constructive uh, criticism to give them, you kind of had to make it up. And that's where we get into with people like yourself or me and many other people who are listening to this, where you get the performance review and your work is great. You're performing in all regards work-related. And then the personal stuff gets thrown in Mm -hmm. to kind of take it down a notch. Mm -hmm. And I, like, I, when I... When I think about the impact performance reviews have on the mental health of everyone involved, particularly the person who has to hear hear this review of their personal performance as well, I wonder how productive they've ever been. And could this be something that could go away next? Yeah, you're right. I mean, just the word performance, right, infers theatrics, mm-hmm. infers a script, infers that we are performing for a role. Um, and it's in general, I mean, I have yet to work at a place where that's a healthy process. Um, yeah. So there's gotta be a way to redo it. I mean, I will, I'll be curious about this next cause I haven't worked in nonprofit before. So this will mm-hmm. be a new space for me in this next role. But I will say that in terms of performance, my commitment to myself throughout the interview process was to bring my authentic self to the table. That's great. And I did. Um, and like there, for example, on my website, it has the writing that I've done. Um, some of that writing is critical of past places Mm-hmm. that I've worked and I knew they would see that. Um, and maybe they'd ask themselves, is she going to write about <laughs> us? <laughs> so like, I just brought my whole self to it. Um, and I, st- I got the job and maybe that is the difference between nonprofit and for-profit, or maybe things are changing, or maybe it was just the luck of the draw with the hiring manager. Um, but I, I hope that that's a sign of what the future could be. I I like to believe that. You know, as a manager who's done a lot of hiring, th- I would look at your website where you're being very straightforward about your work experience. And I would say, this is the kind of person I want to hire because mm-hmm. this person is part of building a better workplace and a genuine person, which I also want to be yeah. around, you know, and work alongside. And I think, I think it's all about people who do, who it's all about people who are working changing that culture, even though it's going to be really, really hard. It is. And it's about our, our kids, right? Like you've mm-hmm. got kids, I've got kids. My kids are, are 21 now. Mm-hmm. They're going to be graduating from college and going out into the workforce. And I don't want them to have to do the pretending that I did for no. three decades of their lives. And I don't want them to feel like then they have to numb themselves from the pain of that performance for three decades of their lives. So we've, yeah, there's a lot of things we need to do for the next generation. Yes. That's one of many, but yes. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I do agree. And I think we have it, we have the responsibility as individuals to help change the culture from within, even though, yeah, it's not always going to work out because maybe Mm -hmm. you work at Amazon and I don't know how that changes, but maybe it does if enough people are. Yes. You know, I mean, that's the power of organizing, of taking collective action. 
Um, and I think that's the only way things get better. And we, the LinkedIn lunatics, have to go find something else to post about. I swear, as soon as we get off this phone, I'm like <laughs> getting on Reddit and looking. Oh, uh, I can't wait. I can't wait to hear your thoughts on it. You got to send me some of your favorites. Maybe I can okay. share them in the show notes. Um, well, thank you so much, Rachel, for coming back again and having such, just bringing such incredible insight. Oh, I always love talking to you, Amanda. And thank Same. you for what you do. I mean, I, uh, I don't know how you do it, honestly, like the amount of content the, of useful content that you put on Instagram and then keeping this podcast current in addition to the other work that you're doing. It's a lot, but it's educating me and I really appreciate it. Well, thank you. I will tell you, I have so much more energy for this than I ever had for my job. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, it's your passion. It's my passion, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I wish it would be, you know, also uh, my income, but someday, right? Um, So yeah, thank you so much, Rachel. Just lovely to talk to you. Thanks, Amanda. Thank you again to Rachel for spending some time with us today. Amazing. As always, the essay she wrote and shared with me that I referenced in our conversation, unfortunately, is not currently available for public reading, but you will all be the first to know when it is. In the meantime, please go give Rachel a follow on Instagram and tell her that she is your favorite clothes horse guest. And if you have a story you'd like to share about work or what this conversation made you think about or recognize, please send it my way. You know, you can record a little audio essay of it or you can just write me an email. Um, Either way, you can send that to amanda at clotheshorse.world. Seriously, we gotta talk about this. We gotta make work better for everyone. And talking about it is step one to making that collective change. I'm going to end things here because, well, one, I really need to eat some dinner. Daylight savings time is really messing me up already. And currently Brenda is sticking her paws under the door and talking to me because she wants me to let her in. So I got to stop recording and let her in. Thanks for listening to another episode of Close Horse, written, researched, edited, all the things by me, Amanda Lee McCarty. If you like what you're hearing, of course, please leave a rating, maybe even a review on Apple Podcasts, but most importantly, tell your friends. If you'd like to support my work financially, there are many ways that you can do that. You can check out patreon.com slash podcast. You could take advantage of the Apple premium subscription, which gives you access to the full archives of Close Horse, but most importantly, just allows you to very easily support my work here and support something that you love, right? Okay, maybe love is a strong word. Maybe like, like really like, like really like hard. You really hard like close horse. Um, And there are other ways you can support my work financially and just in general. And you can learn all about that on Instagram. Thanks as always to my other half, Dustin Travis White for our music and audio support. And I will see you all next week. Bye. (laughs) 